You may open your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Immediately and quickly, without review, dive into the candy and gravy of God's Word about the being and nature and attributes of our glorious God. I want to start, as I told you yesterday in my preparatory email, with the balance and counterpoints, and just a few of them, that the Bible gives us to remind us that we keep our perspective and our knowledge of God agreeable to His Word. The only balance we want about the true God is the one that He's declared about Himself. We don't want to have a balance that matches what men think God should be like. We want the balance of what God is actually like. And the difference is huge. Whenever anyone says to you, we need to be balanced, make sure that they're speaking of the balance of Scripture because every man's balance is a worthless, teetering teetotter. It's like a bowing wall and a teetering fence. It's going to fall. It's worthless. And we want to consider that man has no integrity, but rather a perverse bias against the Most High God as he's revealed himself. He has a bias to put God into a box that is like he thinks God should be. And we reject all of that. Men have made idols of the moon and worship the moon as the Muslims do, and trees as the North American Indian tribes did in totem poles in the northern part of our continent. And bugs and four-footed beasts and creeping things and snakes they've worshipped in spite of creation truth that declares there's a creator God with eternal power and a Godhead. They take inanimate matter, irrational creatures, or a heavenly body that's just a reflection of the sun, and they worship those things. Because man has no integrity to be fair with what God has revealed even in creation, let alone the Word of God, which tells us so much more about Him. They are without excuse because God has made it manifestly plain and clear to them that He is not what they think. They worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, which is insanity. To even think about that is the way Paul explained it as ignorance and superstition when he addressed the Greek philosophers in Athens in Acts 17. In Proverbs 16.2, we read about the bias that men have. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. Every way of a man is clean. It's good. It's pure. It's right in his own eyes. Verse 25 of this same chapter. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. It may seem right to men, but it's suicide. It's a course of suicide that they are on. Chapter 21 of Proverbs, verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. The arrogance and pride with which we were born, inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and first introduced into this universe by the devil himself, tells us and convinces us 
that our thoughts of what is fair, our thoughts of love, our dislike of hatred, our love of checks and balances on authority, all those thoughts we think are right and they're clean and they're good, but the Lord just mocks them here that they are a suicide course for us. We don't need any of that human reasoning for safety with God. I don't want checks and balances on the Most High God. He is His own check and balance in the most infinite, glorious way possible. I don't want men ever getting involved with my God. I don't want any man or woman on earth having anything to do with my eternal life because they're so unfair, unrighteous, hateful, selfish, lazy, temporal, variable, and they might be dead before I finish this long sentence. But not God. And so let's put our trust in Him the way He's taught us. You know, in Psalm 50 and verse 21, which was read to us just two weeks ago, the Lord said, These things hast thou done, and a list of sins has been given. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Psalm 50 and verse 21, Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself, but I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. Men think because they sin and a bolt of lightning does not come down and strike them immediately, God is approving of them. Men think because they can do something contrary to parental advice or pastoral advice and they feel good about the choice that God has given them peace in the matter. They've given themselves peace, lying against the revelation of God. And on and on we could go stringing out the definitions and proof that man is biased against the true nature of God. And we want to keep that in mind and remember it. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes, here we are with David and his son in the books that tell us a great deal about God. Ecclesiastes seven fourteen. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider... God also hath set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. After God's providential dealings in your life, do you know how much is left that you can figure out on your own, that you accomplished on your own? Nothing. So this is our God, and we want His balance. We don't want the balance that men give Him. The arrogance and depravity of man thinks God has to conform to their ideas. And when you meet one of these people, it's very irritating. And if you haven't met them, then what you need to do is just pick someone that you think is the most reasonable person you know and start talking to them about the details of the flood, the details of Romans 9 verse 21 about God being a potter, making vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor from the same lump of human clay, talking about election, and that is a choice God made before the world began, or that the purpose of God according to election might stand in the choice of Jacob over Esau before they were born, before they did any good or evil. Why don't you bring that one up? Or talk about the lake of fire and its duration and the torment of it where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Just go ahead and pursue that with this most reasonable of people that you've met. And they will hate you. The Lord Jesus Christ in his hometown, graciously reading 
Isaiah 61, the first three verses, so graciously that they all wondered at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. He brought up two examples of election. That Elisha was only sent to take care of a widow of another nation, and that Elisha only cured a Syrian of leprosy when there were many lepers in Israel. That's all he did. They had just been wondering at his gracious words. He brings up election. They lead him to a brow of a hill to throw him over a cliff to kill him. And they'll do it to you. Rather than, I mean, you will quite soon hear them say, if God is like you're describing him, then I want nothing to do with your God. Amen. Thank you for confirming the difference between us. That's what they'll say. I've heard that a number of times in my life. If that's the way God is, I don't want anything to do with Him. If that's the way God saves, then I don't believe in salvation, or your salvation is a horrible doctrine, and so on. Because they have imagined to themselves a big cotton candy, senile old man like Michelangelo painted in the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel as their God. But our God is the God of the Bible. To Him belongeth power. I've heard it, yea, I've heard it twice. We read in the second to the last verse of Psalm 62. Rather than get confused or frustrated by counterpoints that Scripture reveals to us, let's revel in the exercise God has given for us to properly know Him by putting them together and the incredible being that results from the combination. Did you see that in the last two verses? I didn't pick Psalm 62. I didn't know that Psalm 62 was our gift this morning. But the last two verses, to him belongeth power. Amen. Yea, also belongeth to him mercy. See, there's two counterpoints. Because he rewards every man according to his work. If he's just got power, you're in serious trouble. The natural creation shows that he's got eternal power and a Godhead. But it doesn't show him something we know, show about him something we know. He's full of mercy and his mercy endureth forever. And great is his mercy and his mercy above our mercy or his mercy compared to our mercy is like the heavens above the earth in such a great distance and difference. So let's rejoice in being able to read his counterpoints and delight in him. God is the only perfect being and person fully worthy of your eternal confidence and trust. There's no one else for you to trust in. No one else cares for you like He does. No one else can help you like He does. No one else knows the details of your life like He does. No one else knows the innermost thoughts of your life. No one else knows the number of hairs on your head. But God does. And He knows all those things and an infinite number of things more about you. His dreadful fury and vengeful justice, which we do preach in this church, are against sin and his enemies. Rejoice in that fact. This great God is on your side for right and truth against all wrong and error. Instead of looking at his power and his ferocity and his terribleness and his fury and his jealousy, line up on the side of the righteous. 
His ears are always open unto their prayers. His eyes are always open to them. His countenance is smiling upon them. You read it last night. I want to preach Job 36 and 37 verse by verse, phrase by phrase, because it was so delightful to look at those verses. Don't just look, don't distort God. You're guilty of a horrible crime when you distort God from what He is in the Bible. In Job chapter 36, it's, oh, I'm at verse 7. I'm sorry, here I go on one of those undesirable rabbit trails. Let's keep it short if I can. Job 36 verse 7. I want verse 6. Slow down, you'll get the whole chapter in yet. Job 36, 6, he preserveth not the life of the wicked. Okay, God will not preserve the life of the wicked. Does that bother you? But I'm wicked. Christians don't say that. I just want you to know that. And when you come together on Wednesday evening, you're going to get an earful. I'm going to show you the truth as it is in Jesus, and I'm going to show you the two ditches. The Arminian ditch of a sugar-coated candy, cotton candy God and the other ditch of a ferocious Catholic sin-hating and sinner-hating God. There's only one kind of a person, and it's a very twisted person that reads the first half of that verse, he preserveth not the life of the wicked and puts themselves in the first half. That's very twisted for a believer to ever put yourself in the first half. You don't belong in the first half. You're not in the first half. It's the same ones that go to Matthew 7 where it says, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And they say to themselves, But I worked iniquity, so I should be fearful of this passage. Are you kidding? I've preached about that. There's no fine line in that passage. Those are the wicked blasphemers that are going to get in the presence of God and be boasting of their good works as being sufficient to get them into heaven. They're the ones that have built their lives upon the sand while we're building our lives upon the rock, Christ Jesus. That wasn't the point that I came back here for. I want to show you some counterpoints about the glory of God. He preserveth not the life of the wicked, but... I love these disjunctives in the Bible. A disjunctive is a conjunction that is adversarial, meaning that the second clause that you're about to read is in opposition to the first clause, but he giveth right to the poor. It doesn't matter how poor or helpless you might be. If you're living a righteous life, which is said in distinction from the wicked man in the first clause, he gives right. He will defend you. He will uphold you. He will be fair. He will protect you. All in one little verse. He withdraweth not his eyes from the righteous. I mean, he won't even preserve the wicked, but he won't even take his eyes off the righteous. We we are like the apple of his eye. He withdraweth not his eyes from the righteous, But with kings are they on the throne. Can you think of anyone that came up to join a king on his throne? Can you think of Joseph? Can you think of Esther? Can you think of Daniel? Hello? Can you think of David? Can you think of others? This is how the Lord takes care of his own. But with kings are they on the throne? Yea, he doth establish them forever, and they are exalted. God raises men up, and no one can put them down until the Lord might want to retire them. Who put Daniel down? Was it when Nebuchadnezzar died and his son took over? Was it when that son died and his grandson took over? Was it when Darius the Mede took over? Was it when Cyrus the Persian took over? Or was he perpetually on the throne of that eastern empire? 
Praise the Lord. And they are exalted. If they be bound in fetters and beholden in cords of affliction, then he showeth them their work. Don't ever think that God is chastening you if he hasn't fully explained the matter to you and you are aware of it. Our God is not so ferocious and so cruel and so lacking in justice and fairness, equity and kindness that he would chasten you without telling you what that chastening is for. Here's the Bible evidence. Right here. And if they be bound in fetters and beholden in cords of affliction, they're being chastened in verse 8, then he showeth them their work and their transgressions that they have exceeded. He explains what you have done wrong. There is, there is a problem in the minds of some because we have preached the sovereignty of God and his terribleness and his power and his vengeance and his jealousy that this God just wants to hurt. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, saith my God. What God have you invented? You are a Roman Catholic. You are a blasphemer. That is not the God of the Bible. And I want to save you from it. And we're going to take a path down the road called the truth as it is in Jesus on Wednesday night. And I'm going to compare the things that my ears have heard from some of you about God. And we will measure it by the Word of God. And we will see that there are two ditches and we don't want to be in either ditch. This is our blessed God. Do you think He's going to take... When was the last time you took a child and just laid into him with a piece of barbed wire? I mean, you made your own cat of nine tails with nine strands of barbed wire coming out of a a baseball bat handle. And you laid into your children, but you never even explained to them what they had done wrong. You wouldn't. He couldn't. Then he showeth them their work and their transgressions that they have exceeded. He openeth also their ear to discipline. How's that? He helps us from the inside out respond well to his chastening. That's so far beyond what you can do. This is my God. This should be your God. That's why we're having this study. Let's rejoice in him. You can cast yourself on him. He's already paid for your sins, past, present, and future. Why are you so worried about them? Do you want me to start selling candles? I'll retire and sell candles to some of you. Because you'll be buying them the rest of your life. Thinking that some penance needs to be paid for your sins. He's paid for them. What did he mean when he said it is finished? It's just begun. Now I'm going to get the rest out of you. He openeth also their ear to discipline and commandeth that they return from iniquity. That is my God. Amen. He opens my ear and then he tells me in my ear, this is the way, walk ye in it. If they obey and serve him, now listen, verse 11. If you didn't hear me shouting last night, I was trying to communicate with all of you, though you weren't in my living room with me. I mean, I've had these chapters picked for weeks, but it doesn't doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many times you've read these chapters, and I have read them a few. I love these verses. Verse 11, if they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. Ferocious, isn't he? If they obey and serve him, he opens their instruction to receive his discipline, and he commands them the way in which they should go. 
and he just afflicts them a little bit. His affliction is very fair. And if they serve and obey him, that this is the verse. This is as true as Genesis 1-1, and it's as true as the last verse of Revelation 22. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. You know, last night with Sherry, we're, we're having this. We're having this. You know, if you were to ask me, are there any things that you worry about right now in your life? <laughs> I could have given you a hundred before you could have given me ten. But it's still prosperity and pleasure because we've got the Lord. We know that He's going to work everything out anyway. I just love these verses. But if they obey not, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. Will God punish you if you sin against Him? Yes. But, oh, there's a different category. But the hypocrites in heart heap up wrath. They cry not when He bindeth them. There's a total difference between the righteous and the wicked. If you're even talking to me about being sorry for some event in your life, you don't even belong in that other category of the wicked not being preserved. He's chastening you. and There's so much more that could be said. Oh, Lord, help me to say it without taking forever on this wonderful subject. This great God is on your side for right and truth against all wrong and error. You should be glad He's got power. You should be glad He's jealous. You should be glad He's righteous. You should be glad He's got the hammer of justice in heaven. All those things I rejoice in because there's none in the world. When I see what looks like someone getting away with wickedness in the world or arrogance, I know that they are about to fall because the Bible tells me they're going to and there's a God in heaven that hates their arrogance. Oh Lord, if you truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, He poured out His wrath on His Son instead of you. And He has viewed you legally sinless since before He created Adam and Eve. He chose you in His eternal counsel before He made the worlds. Because the Bible tells us that. He chose us in Christ before the world began. So before Genesis 1-1, I was already in eternal union with Jesus Christ, chosen and placed there by God with my name in the book of life. And you want me to fuss and fret about you with your sins? They've been paid for. If you want that fellowship reopened with God, then confess them because He is faithful and just to do it. And live your, live your years in prosperity and pleasures. He has this God that you can trust in. Did you see how many times the word trust was in Psalm 62? Trust in Him, ye people. Trust in Him, ye people. Trust in Him. Did you see it there? This being is worthy of your full trust for time and eternity, for any matter, any overwhelming matter that is too much for you to bear. It's nothing for him. Put your trust in him. He has and knows eternal love that you cannot imagine in your wildest fantasies. For he has loved you forever. Though you were an enemy. And he paid the ultimate price in that love for you, as our brother prayed earlier this morning. You've never had anyone love you at all in comparison to him. Right. It's impossible. If, if his ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts, like the heaven is above the earth, when it comes to pardon and mercy, so is it with love. What do you know about love, any of you? What do I know about love? Yes, we're supposed to love the brethren, but our love of the brethren is so isolated, so simple, so cheap in comparison to what he's done for us for eternity. 
And he set it on us when we were his enemies. It's not like you know that you're loved because there's a certain thing about you. It's because he set his love on you. And then he made it possible to love you by sending his son to die for you and then changing your nature. Wouldn't that be nice? I'd be a whole lot more lovable if I could change your nature. Because I'd make you like me. Don't laugh too hard because you'd do the same thing to me. You know, God does that. And he's purposed to do that before the world begins. You can put your trust in him. What are you afraid of? Put your trust in him. I hope you're still at Job 36. Good. I told my wife last night, I said, you know, if our brethren read carefully enough, those that are afraid of storms would have a verse for me. But since they don't, I'll give it to you. Was Elihu afraid of storms? Be very careful about your answer. Job 37.1 At this also my heart trembleth and is moved out of his place. This is Elihu talking about storms. At this also, if you go back up to the previous verses, it's about his cloud and his thunder and his lightning and sending lots of rain. At this also my heart trembleth and is moved out of his place. Hear attentively the noise of his voice and the sound that goeth out of his mouth. He directeth it under the whole heaven and his lightnings under the ends of the earth. After it. You normally hear thunder after the lightning. Okay, that's why it's there. You know, Elihu understood that sound travels at 650 miles per hour and light travels at 176,000 miles per second, just a little bit faster. So you see the light and then you hear the sound. After it, a voice roareth. That's the thunder after the lightnings. He thundereth with the voice of his excellency. But notice how Elihu describes it. it. He thundereth with the voice of his terribleness and dreadfulness. No, with his excellency. And he will not stay them when his voice is heard. God thundereth marvelously with his voice. Great things doeth he which we cannot comprehend. And it goes on. All here in Job 36 and 37. And you should have had such a delightful time last night to see the counterpoints. Watch. Thunder. My heart is moved out of its place. My heart trembleth. And yet, how about verse 17? How thy garments are warm when he quieteth the earth by the south wind. The same God causes there not to be much wind except a nice little breeze that brings warm weather. And the sun shines on you, and you've heard me describe it as being kissed and embraced by the God of heaven by his Son. But it's, is this in the same chapter? Or did I just change books on you? Is this in the same chapter? This is what I mean by counterpoints. This is what I mean by counterpoints. Now, how much has God changed from the storm to the sunny day that comes next? None. Did all of a sudden you become a serial killer in those 24 hours? From a sunny day to a stormy day? Then what changed? Oh, this God of yours. That's right. This God of yours on one day just smiles with his countenance and the next day he wants to send a bolt of lightning down into your bedroom, right into your heart and explode it and splatter your blood all over the walls, right? That's what you think. Because you didn't read your Bible that day. You don't know the God of the Bible. Lord, I have not taught them that God. 
ever. He has and knows eternal love that's unbelievable to us. His faithfulness and integrity are far beyond anything that you can even understand. He has a nature and operates by perfect laws of righteousness. He is fair, which I want to be so much in my dealings. I want to be fair and impartial. But he is better than fair. He is, he is fairer than fair. He, he is perfect in equity, in judgment, in understanding and knowledge. In all his ways are truth and righteous is he. He is perfect and there is no error or fault in any of his dealings. And yet you fear him. He sent his son to die for you. You know, when the thunder shakes the house and you can feel it in your spleen, the only kind that's worth hearing, you can feel the thunder, of course my heart trembles a little bit. You can't avoid it. But at the same time, you know what I do about one second later? Awesome! Right. Just, just like that. Awesome, Lord! I think it was uh, Thursday. Was it Thursday that we got pounded? Oh, sweet. The rain was horizontal, and it was just blasting against the house. And you look at the big pieces of glass. Charlie, I don't know how strong they are. I'm just looking at them saying, it's about to implode, and I'm going to get wet. Because it was powerful. Fifteen minutes later, the great big crepe myrtles that are in our backyard, the leaves were not moving in the least degree. There was absolute motionlessness in 15 minutes. It was phenomenal. Had God changed? No. He wanted to show me that he could do both. And I tell him. I stood out there and looked at... I looked at the crepe myrtles. The, The leaves were not even wiggling the least bit. And a few minutes earlier, they were bent over for their lives, about ready to be snapped off. All of this is the Lord. Counterpoints. Does he change? He's unchangeable. There's not even the shadow of turning with him. He's immutable. Oh, Lord, help us to know you and to balance all these things we know about you and make you as wonderful as you truly are, that we can put our trust in thee. Why would the psalmist... He's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, if he's a sweet psalmist, then the psalms should be sweet to you. How could a sweet man write you to put your trust in him if every night you should be afraid that that God you put your trust in, who is called your refuge, really wants to hurt you? You say, well, sometimes he does hurt his children. Yes. And you know what? When, When he hurts them, they're able to say back to him in faithfulness, hast thou afflicted me in Psalm 119, because they all know that, because he told them what they're doing wrong, and they just kept doing it. Did we have the word exceeded over there in Jeremiah 36? Did, Did that word mean anything to you? Is that one offense? Is that two offenses? Or is that something like this? He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. It's presumptuous sins that you persist in profanely against the, the, the pricks of Almighty God. Sin is an infinite offense, yet He forgives and pardons past our knowledge and comprehension. You know of no one else even close to Him in a single aspect, let alone all of the aspects of God. Put your trust in Him. The U.S. constitutional provisions like 
innocent until proven guilty or not being punished under double jeopardy laws are jokes in comparison to God. Because they're so weak because they're invented by men and they're violated every day anyway. But God never violates His and they're based on perfect and infinite righteousness and justice. All of His attributes come together to form a perfect being. His attributes define and limit His other attributes. For instance, God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 16, God is love. Some will take those three words, God is love, and just make Him love everything. Since God is love, He must love everything. Love is a requirement of His nature. He has to love, so He has to love me, though I'm a sinner. He has to love everything, everyone, all the time. No. Chapter 1 of that book says God is light. Now what does that mean? He's holy. God is holy, and He cannot love an object that is unholy. That's why He chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began that we should be, I just need one word, holy. You know how to put those things together in the Word of God so that you can find peace for your soul. If all you want to do is find, He hates all workers of iniquity. That's not all there is in the Bible about God. He loves all workers of iniquity that He put in Christ Jesus because their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. These are counterpoints. This is the balance that God's given us of Him. Rejoice in Him. Delight in Him with me. God is love. Yes, that is true. But He only loves holy objects. Just like we're to love the brethren and hate the enemies of God. Psalm 139, verses 1 John chapters 3 through 5. If this causes you doubt or fear that God only loves holy objects, you are forgetting He chose you in Christ before the world began to be holy. Now, my brethren, if you've distorted God, any ditch is bad. It doesn't matter which ditch you're in, whether it's the Arminian candy-coated God or it's the Catholic sinner-hating God for which they can get candles out of everybody for all their lives. You've distorted Him. It's your fault because you've rejected the Bible, you've exalted your own thoughts, or you're so lazy and not sincere enough to have searched out the truth because He's so easy to find. All you've got to do is read the Bible. Oh, Lord, help us. God is long-suffering. That's wonderful. But He won't suffer forever. That's also wonderful. I like that part of Him too. But why is He long-suffering? That we should repent. The long-suffering of God should lead us to repentance. The long-suffering of God is accounted salvation in 2 Peter chapter 3, which I taught you recently. And so in either case, we want to repent. We don't want to ever presume on His long-suffering. So we want to see its balance. God is long-suffering, but that means He's not going to let you, child of God, get away with sin forever. He wants you to repent. His long-suffering should lead us to repentance. God is merciful and forgiving, but only so by bruising Jesus Christ in our place. And so when you're thinking, well, I'm not worthy of His mercy. None of us are. That's why it's called mercy. Mercy means no one's worthy of it. It means He has you dead to rights and should and could punish you and be consistent with His nature, but He chooses to have mercy because He punished His Son Jesus Christ instead, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. The same God that drowned the earth with a flood found and comforted the base Hagar, an Egyptian, pregnant, forsaken, fired slave. What else do you want to know about her? 
she's out in the wilderness and she's about to die and she's pregnant. It's Genesis 16. You know, that's 10 chapters after the flood. The same God. Well, what favor did she have? She had worshipped the God of her master, Abraham. She wasn't like her other relatives, the Egyptians. And so God found her and blessed her and took care of her and made promises to her. And she renamed him, Thou God seest me. Now, there was no one in the waters of the flood that could hear that because for 120 years, they had rejected the preaching of Noah. And if you reject preaching that comes to your ears, you're going to be held accountable for that as well. But I want you to get the counterpoints of this great God. In Genesis 6, he sends the flood. It's described for three chapters. And then in Genesis 16, he chases down Hagar and says, Go home and I'll take care of you and I'll make a great nation out of your son. I I love this God. In Numbers chapter 15, God had a man stoned to death for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. And See? See how mean he is? See how mean he is. That man's been living on free manna his entire life. And quail. And God had said the Sabbath was not to be violated. That it was holy to him. And every week he got a reminder because there wouldn't be any manna. And he went out and presumptuously picked up sticks in the seventh day. The Bible tells us that very specifically. He profaned the Sabbath. He went out presumptuously and so God had him stoned. There's a very real difference between sins of ignorance and a profane sin like that, that that man made. But you know what the Bible says about the Sabbath? I will have mercy and not sacrifice about that same institution in Hosea 6.6 and Matthew 12.7 and Mark 2.25. It's just, okay. Fools speak of unconditional love. And you know they are a fool. Anybody that wants to talk about unconditional love, you want somebody to love you no matter what you do. Would you please just write down in one sentence what we end up loving? Just, Just help me out. Is it your DNA? Is it your eye color? Is it the number of pounds you weigh on a scale? What is it about you? God doesn't love unconditionally. He paid the condition in order to love you. He couldn't love you because there's nothing lovable about you, and that's what I'm trying to get you to think about yourself. You say, that just leaves me so insecure. Because you're trusting in you, and instead of God. Because God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to make it possible. And not only that, He changed my nature. Because I know what I've been like over 55 years, and I know that for me to love Him the way that I do, He changed my nature to love Him, so I would be a little bit more lovable, but all His love toward me anyway is through Christ Jesus. And He's given me a nature that is holy and righteous in the fullest sense of the word, My new man doesn't have to be altered at all. When it's glorified in heaven, it's already as good as it's going to be. Jesus Christ made it possible for God to love me. And so it's very conditional love. But the the condition has already been met. It's not dependent on me. My, my, My performance is not what makes God love me. My performance doesn't keep God loving me. 
Jesus Christ's performance keeps God loving me, and he died once for all my sins, and he ever liveth to make intercession for me at the right hand of God. I am as secure as anything in the universe, including the nature of God, because it is God's nature that has Jesus Christ at his right hand by a divine covenant. You know there's things God cannot do? Delight in these things God cannot do. He cannot acquit. Well, that scares me. No, we don't want him to acquit. You know, those presidential pardons at the end of the year, they make me sick when you find out that they made campaign donations and so forth, and so they're pardoned. I don't want to say any more about them than that. He cannot acquit. I love that fact about him because I know that everyone that wants to deny him and profane him, he's going to punish. I know the devil's going to be punished. I know every wicked blasphemer is going to be punished. That doesn't bother me. He cannot acquit. What it tells me is, how did he have mercy on me? It's because he sent his son, Jesus Christ. That's the only way he cannot acquit and yet love Jonathan Crosby because there's someone in between those two things that balance this all out in his nature, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ that he might be just and the justifier. If he was just just, to hell I go. As a justifier, to heaven I go. How can he do that since it's against his nature? In Christ. Everything comes back to Christ for mercy toward us. He can acquit. He cannot die. He raises his hand to heaven and swears, I live forever. Deuteronomy 32.40. I love that. Everyone else dies. My loving mother dies on me. Leaves me alone. Should I be grief stricken? She's in a better place and God still loves me. Everybody's going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. But he doesn't die. He, he cannot lie. Do you know the Bible tells us? The God that cannot lie. Promised eternal life before the world began. Oh, we're full of lies. The poison of asps is under our lips. Our mouths are full of guile in comparison to God. But he never lies. All of his promises are true. When he says, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you, is that some sort of a come on to sell you something? He cannot lie. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He cannot lie. I will come to you and dwell in you. He cannot lie. That where I am, there ye may be also. He cannot lie. And if I go away, I'll come again. He cannot lie through Jesus Christ, his son. He cannot repent. You say, see, he can't repent. He's going to come and judge me. Oh, you're you're missing the verses because the one that applies to you is in Romans chapter 11 where it says that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. (laughs) See, he's promised you eternal life, so he can't take it back. You say, I know he wants to. You don't know the God of the Bible. You're making up something. You should be a Catholic. Take some money every week, buy yourself a mass, buy yourself some candles, and they'll light them there and burn them. And you can keep those boy-loving sodomites in business. That's how they live. That's how they make their money is to teach a God that is chasing them every day of their lives. He cannot deny himself. Oh, I love that about him. He cannot fail, and he cannot shortchange the elect. He that 
he that delivered up his son for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Don't distort him, please. Look at it. Look at Exodus 3. Exodus 3. Those were a few thoughts on counterpoints and the balance that we want about the nature of God. We want the balance that the Bible teaches us. Oh, he loves his children. He loves his people. He loves his chosen people. He loves his elect. They can put their trust in him. He hates the wicked, and he'll destroy them. And there's no fine line between the righteous and the wicked. Put yourself in the camp of the righteous. The Bible tells you to do that. Lay hold on eternal life. Laying up in store a good foundation against the time to come. The Bible tells you to do that. You can do that. To the merciful, he will show himself merciful. Then be merciful. Exodus chapter 3. Okay. My favorite attribute of our great God. There's a burning bush on the backside of the desert, and Moses is standing there, and God is going to ordain him to the ministry. And that is to go back into Egypt and to bring out God's people, a couple million of them, and lead them to the promised land of Canaan that had been promised to Abraham 430 years before. And Moses says to God in verse 13, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and they haven't seen me in 40 years, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you. Their fathers were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? Now, they would have known the name Almighty God. Now, remember, Moses had lived with the Egyptians up until when he left Egypt 40 years earlier. They barely knew of him. They didn't know if he was an Egyptian or Israelite. If you're coming to deliver us and God has, the God has sent you, what is his name? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. So he tied in, being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with the new name that he's given, I am that I am. I spent a whole Wednesday evening, and I delighted in every minute of it with you, with a bunch of slides. It's entitled, A Name Above Every Name, where we went over the sacred Hebrew tetragrammaton of four consonants, that our I am that I am in Hebrew, that when pointed up with European vowels, is pronounced Jehovah. So that, in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3, we read that God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. Exodus 6.2. Exodus 6.3 now. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty. But by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them. So, if we just compare these two passages, this name Jehovah had not been used in the Bible before until it was revealed to Moses. And what name had been revealed to Moses that hadn't been revealed before? I am that I am. It's a delightful name. And in that name, we have God's independence. You can talk about His infinity, and you can talk about His omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence and all the other things that we're going to look at about God. He's invisible. He's immutable. He's immortal. He's eternal. But he's independent. I am that I am. 
I will use a present tense verb to describe me, that all I am, that is what I was, that is what I shall be, I am self-existent, I am self-sufficient, I am self-subsistent, I am self-determining, I am that I am. There is nothing else like him in the universe. Today, you are what your parents did under the sheets. You are what God created and granted in the act of conception. You are sustained by Him every moment of your life. Your breath is in your nostrils. You are utterly dependent. You are changeable. You are temporal. You only exist by the help of others. God is, I am. I exist. I'm self-existent. Nothing else in the universe is like that. He's glorious. I love him for this name. If he says this name is a memorial unto all generations, then it is a name that I love. If this name is Jehovah, and it's only used a few times in the Bible by that particular combination of letters, then I love it. But every time you see Lord in all capital letters, you know that there is the Hebrew four consonants, I am that I am. This is his glorious name. This tells us something about God. I am that I am is the meaning and the definition of Jehovah. The name Jehovah. We don't, God is not a name. God is the title of a divine being. It's just a descriptive word that tells us about a supreme ruler, a supernatural being. And we don't want to use that because the Muslims use that. And, and other people say, well, we're all worshiping the same God. No, we worship Jehovah and his son, Jesus Christ, who is Jehovah in the flesh. Now that's pretty simple gospel, isn't it? But that's what I love. I love the Bible. Quit using God. Use his name that he said is my memorial. Jehovah. Oh, well then you're going to start getting emails saying that you're Jehovah's witness. I already get them. You know, for me to use the name Jehovah in a Proverbs commentary, do you know what that means? I get people thinking that we're Jehovah's Witnesses. Do you know why that's happened? Because the pulpits of America will not preach the truth about the name of God. God isn't a name. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know him as God. They knew him as God Almighty. Because do you know what? There are gods many, but there's only one Almighty. What does Almighty mean? Omnipotent. Will we get to it? Oh, yes. Thank you, Lord. I love this name of yours. He is not created. He's not derived. He's not affected. He's not influenced. He's not altered. He is absolutely what and who he is by his own will and power forever without alteration or assistance. He is self-existent. That is the most incredible concept ever. And we're talking about an infinite being. How does an infinite being exist by his own will and power? How could he get started? (laughs) He didn't. Now unto the king eternal. Every pew in this assembly room had a beginning and was formed and fashioned. It is what carpenters made it. It is what a manufacturing facility made it. I am that I am. He is opposite all the pagan gods and idols of all time, which are nothing but the imaginations of blinded and profane liars. Oh, I love his this name. I want you to love it. Let me say it again. He's not created. He's not derived. 
He's not begotten. He's not affected. He's not influenced. He's not altered. God is absolutely self-existent, self-sufficient, self-subsistent, self-determining for all eternity. He is that He always was and that He shall be. And that He shall be is that He is. I'm changing every day and I don't like the changes. He can say, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Some of you think He changes. You can go out in the garden and pick a flower and thank Him for the sunshine, but if an hour later storm clouds come and the lightning bolts are in it, I'm trying to help. I know I'm, I'm not very gentle at helping. I don't have a good bedside manner or a good pulpit manner. But suffer me to speak on behalf of my Maker. Amen. Because I'm going to ascribe righteousness, goodness, gentleness to Him right. and not to you or to me. God is necessary. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. He's opposite of every creature. All creatures are unnecessary. They're not eternal. They're changeable. They're derived. They're dependent. That's the best of men. Let's think of the best of men. Who was the best man? Let's pick Paul. Even Paul. 1 Corinthians 15.10. But Keep your finger there at Exodus 3. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Did you know that Paul picked up very similar words to Exodus 3.14 and described himself? I am what I am. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Yes. But there's no grace that lets Jehovah be what He is. He is self-existent. Self-determining. Self-perfect. Any improvement in Saul of Tarsus' life, any goodness in Saul's life was by the grace of God. I am what I am. I just wanted to show you that little... We take the best man, and what he is, is by the grace of God. We take God, and what he is, I am. You say, it. it's a little obscure to me. It's supposed to be. You're you, and on earth... He's Jehovah, and He's in heaven. It should be obscure, but it's not very obscure. It means He is self-existent, eternal, unchanging, independent from all other beings in the universe. He needs no will, nor power, nor approval, nor acceptance by anyone or anything at any time. He is God, self-proving, self-determining, self-existing, without anything else including us. He was without change, thus all His promises stand. There's no one that can influence Him, and from that we can take comfort. God is singularly and only God by Himself. Pagan gods are always a plurality, and they're by men. Look at Job 33. Let's see if in a few verses we can fill this out and take our break between services this morning. Job 33. I am that I am. He's independent. Independent means he's not dependent. He's not depending on any being at all. He's not depending on anything outside himself because I am that I am. It's glorious. 
You should be able to tell that in your Bibles that that is his glorious name. The, the Jews were, were superstitious about it and wouldn't write it, so they just put the unpronounced consonants, and we point it up to get Jehovah, and we say LORD in all caps when we find it. Job 33 and verse 13, Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. Job 33, 13. This is your pastor's favorite attribute of God. He is independent. Now the reason I like it is, he doesn't need me. That's what I like about it. I can't benefit him. No matter what I would do, no matter how hard I would try, I cannot benefit or add to him, which makes him very great. Everyone else I've ever known in life, I could influence or help or add to them. Even the government I add to whenever I sign a check and send it off with a tax return. But there's nothing I can add to the Lord Jehovah. He's independent, which makes him very great and me very small. But that's where I find my greatest comfort. To try to make myself big enough for God to owe me something is ridiculous to my mind. And it should be to yours because the Bible makes it ridiculous. Standing beside an ocean, I feel so incredibly small against the vastness and the power of those waves and the quantity of the water and the darkness. I, don't, I only like doing it at night. But then I know that there's a God that created that ocean and He put that strip of sand and He told me, I'm never going to let that water go any farther than I want it to. You can stand there right now on the edge of it and laugh at it. You can stand there on the edge of it and watch it foaming out at your toes. And you look down at your toes and all there is is a little bit of foam. Where's the rower of the big ocean? Because God told me all about that foam. And he tells me all the wicked are foaming out there, shame until the day he casts them into hell. And so we take comfort in this great God because he has set his love upon me. And do you know what that means when he's independent? Neither you nor the Pope of Rome nor every priest of Rome praying against me like they said they were against the martyrs can alter his love of me at all because he is independent. Nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not angels, not principalities, not things to come, not things present, not height, not depth, nor any other creature. Do you like that? Amen. Where does that come from? I am that I am. And when I am chooses to love you, that love is as secure. I don't want to say anything. As secure as what? As secure as his name. I am that I am. 40 and verse 2. Job 40 verse 2. Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. This is the Lord now speaking to Job. Elihu had his time, and it's a tag team, and he has slapped the hands of the Lord Jehovah, and now it's Jehovah's time to address Job. And you see, you can see Job's answer there in verses 3 and 4. Behold, I am vile. I shouldn't have opened my mouth. I will put my hand over my mouth. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. I am that I am. He's not accountable 
at all to man. Remember when Jesus told about some workers that he hired in the morning for a penny a day? Then the clock went three hours and he hired some more than three and three and some he only hired for one hour. And they said, well, that ain't fair. Is it not fair for me to do what I will with my own? What is that? How is that interpreted? I am that I am. And if Job had known that a little bit better, he would have got out of his trouble. I hope you read that last night in Job 36 and you understood it. In verses 16 through 18, his trials would have all been over long before he got to Elihu if he wouldn't have opened his mouth and started smarting off to God. Fatness would have been at his table again. He'd have been out of the straight that he was in. Straight, not with a GH, but straight, without a GH, meaning a restricted, bound-up life at a campfire with boils all over him. They would have been gone, but because he was acting scornful, Elihu warned him, God's now angry. It was just a test. But now God's angry, and his stroke is about to take you away. But see again, there come warnings from the preacher before anything happened to Job. And was God merciful knowing that he had put Job under extreme duress? Yes. Just read chapter 42. He wasn't as merciful to his three friends. For of him and through him and to him are all things, Romans 11 tells us, and who has been his instructor to teach him. No one can give him anything. Job 34 and verse 13. Job 34, 13. Who hath given him a charge over the earth? I am that I am. If you're going to look at my sovereignty, my sovereignty is a self-chosen, determined sovereignty. Who hath given him a charge over the earth? Did someone give God the right to do what he wills with the earth? No. He just took it. Because he created it. It's his creature. Who hath given him a charge over the earth? Or who hath disposed the whole world? God has done that. Look at chapter 22. God doesn't need us. This is so wonderful. Verse 1, Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable unto God as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? You, by being, prof- by being wise, can profit yourself. You can profit yourself professionally. You can profit yourself maritally by being wise in who you marry, so on. But can we be profitable unto God? What's the, what's the answer to this question? No. Verse 3, Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Does it really change his inherent happiness? No. Or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? Does he all of a sudden improve in the universe? No. Will he reprove thee for fear of thee? No. Will he enter with thee into judgment? Never. I am that I am. Look at 35. Job 35. We'll get the words of Elihu. Verse 5. Job 35, 5. Look unto the heavens and see. Elihu tells Job, And behold the clouds which are higher than thou. Now verse 6 of Job 35. If thou sinnest, what doest thou against him? Or if thy transgressions be multiplied, what doest thou unto him? If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thine hand? Can you answer all these questions? They help you know God. Thy wickedness may hurt a man as thou art, and thy righteousness may profit the son of man, but you can't touch, I am that I am. He is self-existent, self-subsistent, self-determining, and far above and beyond anything you can do. 
And he's glorious that way. I am that I am. I am my father's son. I hope once in a while he's thankful. We're, we're just derived beings. We're creatures. And he's a creator. And so we want to worship him that way. God doesn't need angels, nor does he trust them. Just read Job 4, 15, and 25 as chapters. The nations of men are nothing and less than nothing to him. How many of you want to jump up and shout when Philip got to Psalm 62 and verse 9? Surely, men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. All together, that means put them all together. Low Men of low class, men of high class, whatever by whatever measure, put them all together. They're lighter than vanity. In a balance, you put vanity over here. That's nothing. And all of a sudden, nothing boom, goes down because all men are over on the other side of the balance and they're lighter. Glory. You know, you can look at low class men and you say, well, I understand that they're vanity. They're profitless. They're nothing. They can't do anything for themselves, let alone anyone else. But then you look at men of high degree, whether it's politically, whether it's professionally, business, financially, athletically, academically, they're a lie. Wonderful. This is our God. I am that I am. How can God's independence help you please Him more and trust Him more? He is beholden to none, so there is no other influence on Him against you. Glory in that. Do you know that we've do you know that there are there are people of various sects that pray against our church on a regular basis? Does that bother you? Do you fear that? See, the God we worship is independent. Right. And so we put our trust in him according to his word, and we don't care how many pray against us. Do you know what it was like to be a martyr when the most powerful Christian church in the world would pronounce an anathema against you and say that your soul would be dropping into hell as soon as they took your life? But you put your trust in an independent God that was not moved by all the gold, power, influence, or pride and arrogance of the church of Rome. No man can add or take away from him, so none can influence him against you. Satan and the devils had to beg God for permission to afflict Job and to even enter a herd of swine. Right. I, I love typing that out. When I type it out, it's very personal to me. Remember, Jerry? The devil's very personal to me. It's a very conscious act when I type out a sentence that he had to get permission from my God to even enter swine. Because my trust is in him. All I can say is the Lord rebuke thee. He has and he will. The Bible says, and it says this a number of times, and I'm only reading you one. It says this, and I want you to think about the martyrs. This is the third time I've used the word martyr. John 16, 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. That's scary, but not very scary because God is independent of all of them 
And if we put our trust in him according to his word, he preserved his martyrs and he is coming soon to avenge every single one of them. His love for you is so independent. This is the second time I've said this one, but I don't want you to forget it. His love for you is so independent from all other creatures and influences uh, and dimensions of time or space. Did you want Romans 8, 38 through 39 to run on for another couple pages? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth. How long do you want the list to go? Because it wouldn't matter how long it went. It is all comprehended in what's just been stated. I am that I am loves me, and nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. He does not love me because there's something lovable in me. He loves me because he put me in the one that is altogether lovely. This is my beloved son in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he's put you. What's there to fear? His independence of all creatures lets me know that he can choose to set his love on whomever he will, and he is not bound to love any. He has chosen to love some. All glory be to God.